Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you had to say who in 2020 was the biggest advocate for opening up the economy, for not restricting businesses during the pandemic, I think for many of us, the same person would leap to mind. Our country wasn't built to be shut down. America will again and soon be open for business. Everybody wants to get open. They want to get open and they want to get back to business. And their constituents, the citizens of this country, want to get back. Indeed, if there has been a partisan divide during the pandemic, it has often, though not always, been between Republicans who wanted businesses to spring back more quickly and Democrats who frequently wanted things to move more slowly. And this isn't really surprising. Republicans are often thought of as pro-business, while Democrats tend to be more pro-union, pushing for increased benefits and pay for workers. But how was that divide created? Turns out, if you're looking for the birth of the sort of conservatism that we see in the White House now, well, you've got to look in an unexpected place. Well, I argue that it's California agribusiness that really starts to develop a lot of the techniques of modern conservatism. Catherine Olmsted is a professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and the author of Right Out of California, the 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism. Corporate agribusiness in California was used to relying on the government to help it control its workers. And it was very much in favor of a strong government because it was a strong government that built the dams and irrigation canals and tunnels and roads that it needed. But then in the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the federal government started encouraging workers to form unions. It was the presidency of Roosevelt and some ugly moments during the Great Depression that turned conservatives against big government, Olmsted says. And there was one man who rather brilliantly spearheaded that charge against Roosevelt, a man who, though he might have seemed like a short-term loser, may ultimately have been a long-term winner. I think he was very important in helping to create the modern conservative movement. That very important fellow had lost badly to FDR in the 1932 election. But after he lost, Herbert Hoover didn't really go anywhere. I mean, he's often thought of as this loser because he lost so badly to Roosevelt in 1932. But he had a lot of money, he had a lot of contacts, and he lived a long time. He lived until 1964. And he spent those many decades after his presidency organizing against the New Deal and against the Democratic Party. Olmsted argues Hoover and the Great Depression forged the conservative movement that we see today. The values that have been reflected in the White House over the past few years, the embrace of big business, and the skepticism about unions and workers' rights. Hoover landed in California, right near Stanford, after Roosevelt defeated him by running on the New Deal, a program Hoover hated, and he would spend the rest of his life trying to dismantle it. Part of this, of course, is is personal because he's very angry that he lost, but also it's ideological. He is uh, very much a a right-wing conservative who believes that the government should not be playing this role in the economy. And he is starting, even in 33 and 34, to write dozens of letters a day, uh, make phone calls, send telegrams to conservative leaders around the country, trying to figure out how do we make a movement to counter the New Deal. 
One of the most successful ways of arguing against the New Deal, Olmsted notes, was to say that Democrats were elitists who wanted to change traditional society. They wanted to upend traditional gender roles and traditional racial hierarchies. And if some of those arguments sound contemporary, the story you're about to hear has some equally familiar components, like fake news, God and the family. But let's start with the setting, an America full of destitute people. California farm workers were among the poorest of the poor. A lot of them were recent immigrants uh, from Mexico or the Philippines, or increasingly a lot of them were migrants from the Dust Bowl. And they could not earn enough money for anything more than rice and beans and gas to get to the next uh, job. These were the sorts of folks who inspired John Steinbeck, who lived on California's central coast, to write books like The Grapes of Wrath. The farm workers traveled around in jalopies, their lives were plagued by disease, and they were plagued too by unending, backbreaking work. And the whole family would live in the car or in a tent attached to the car. They would camp in ditches, and children as young as seven years old were expected to work in the fields all day. And it was 12-hour days, seven days a week, They didn't have enough money, in in many cases, for the children to have shoes. Catherine Olmsted says that for these sorts of workers, the idea of forming a union was a dream. It offered the promise of getting a little more money, of seeing fewer children die from lives spent in destitution. And this is where it gets complicated and why the conservatism that was born of this moment traveled such a curious path. So... One thing that FDR and his New Deal did was they supported the formation of unions, in car factories, for example, but not on farms. Why not? Well, because Southern Democrats whose support was needed for the New Deal, they did not want sharecroppers striking or unionizing. So Democrats said unions in auto plants? Sure. Unions on farms? No way. But the California farm workers did not understand this. The California farm workers thought that they were protected by the New Deal. They just heard that Franklin Roosevelt was now protecting unions. So in 1933, there was a massive wave of strikes up and down California with about 50,000 farm workers participating because they thought they were protected by these new laws of the Democratic administration in Washington, D.C., So, okay, so you had people who ran agribusiness, these incredibly rich people uh, who were angry at FDR because they felt like he was protecting workers, except he wasn't actually protecting their workers. And then you had workers being like, great, we're in this new era where we can do all these things to protect ourselves. But actually, they misunderstood they weren't protected at all. Right. And this is the thing about the New Deal is some of its consequences were unintended. It had this revolutionary impact. And not always because Franklin Roosevelt wanted it to have a revolutionary impact. It's just that people took these laws and made them their own. Um, In this case, the farm workers in California decided, okay, we are going to now unionize and demand essentially the national minimum wage for picking crops in California. So who won in these strikes of, of the 30s? Were, did workers get more money? Did they get more rights? Were they able to uh, make some headway with agribusiness? 
Uh, no is the short answer. Um, okay. And the, the 1933 cotton strike where the, the New Deal administrators did intervene, the cotton pickers did earn a little bit more in that particular growing season because the government had threatened to withdraw its agricultural subsidies from the cotton growers unless they paid a little bit more money. So in that particular strike, they did win. But the growers then mobilized to make sure that that never happened again. And also the New Deal administrators decided that this really wasn't worth it. They weren't going to pick a fight with the corporate uh, growers of California. So they stopped even having these fact-finding commissions. So from that point on, the workers lost because they had no outside authority helping them or guaranteeing their rights. Now, it was a different story, of course, for industrial workers in the 30s who did have government protection, and, and there was a, hmm. a real change in the relationship between workers and employers in factories in the 1930s as a result of unionization. But in the fields, because there was no legislation protecting them, that did not happen. So if you have these you know, leaders of agribusiness in, in California and they are basically able to prevail, like get what they want and not have to give workers what they want, how then does that transition into a conservatism that was so powerful that, I mean, it could be exported to the rest of the country. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, now I don't have to pay people this much an hour. It was much bigger and more impactful than that. Right. I think that they organized because they were so angry about the New Deal labor laws and because they were worried about losing control of their workforce. Okay. But once they decided to organize, they did not stop with that. They did not say, okay, we're going to oppose New Deal labor laws, but the rest of it is just fine. They began to see the government as changing its role in American society, as indeed it was. They saw the New Deal as a force for social democracy in the United States, as a program of reform that would give workers more control over their workplace, give them more money, but also a government that was providing jobs for the unemployed, that was taxing rich people at a higher marginal rate, and that was providing pensions for the elderly, as well as guaranteeing union rights. And the corporate growers in California began to sort of wake up and say, this whole program, which at first we thought was hmm. fine because we were getting agricultural subsidies and we were getting more infrastructure projects, we see the government now as a force for evil instead of a force for protecting the markets. And so we need to organized politically, not just against the labor movement, but against the Roosevelt administration. So they developed a lot of political techniques that would be used by conservatives in the future. One of the most successful was to try to create a, a coalition between business conservatives like themselves and social conservatives. Huh, okay. Because the economic reforms of the New Deal were broadly popular. So how could you get a mass coalition against Franklin Roosevelt if his economic policies were so popular? Well, you could say... Franklin Roosevelt is actually threatening traditional social mores, that he is upending gender hierarchies and racial hierarchies. He is friendly to communistic ideas, and this will destroy the family, it will destroy the church, and get a lot of people who were behind the New Deal 
for its progressive economic legislation to see it as a, a social and cultural threat. So how effective were they in saying this isn't just an economic thing? As you say, this is this is changing religion. This is changing the family. Like, you know, the world that you know is changing. Um, how effective were they? And what kinds of um, voters in what kinds of places like heard them and, and did that resonate with? Well, they were first very successful in 1934 in the governor's race in California. This was a, a famous uh, race because the socialist author Upton Sinclair re-registered as a Democrat and then uh, won the Democratic nomination for the governorship. And suddenly all the forces of capital in California were very alarmed that the socialist was going to be governor. And so they began experimenting with public relations techniques that would become mainstream by the late 1930s. In particular, there was this uh, firm in, in Sacramento called uh, Whitaker and Baxter. Uh, Leon Baxter and Clem Whitaker were these public relations consultants who were pretty unknown at the time, but who were then hired by a lot of uh, corporations and capital in California to oppose Upton Sinclair. And they started using these techniques of discrediting Sinclair not as a socialist, because socialism was not necessarily that unpopular in California in 1934, but as a threat to the family and the church. And once these techniques were used against Sinclair and worked so well, they started using them more generally against liberal Democrats. So how did it work um, that the conservative movement, that these approaches to campaigning, which were pretty novel, how did they get imported out to other places, to other states? Well, I think Herbert Hoover is an important uh, figure here, is that he is very much involved in the campaign against Upton Sinclair. He's very much aware of the techniques being used. And he starts to then network with other conservatives throughout the country and encourage them to use the same techniques that were so useful in California against Sinclair and then more broadly against the the New Deal and, and liberal Democrats. And Hoover is one of the people who helps discover Richard Nixon in 1946 uh, and helps to arrange a group of funders of rich donors for Nixon to run first for Congress and then for Senate. And it is this network that he helps set up to help Nixon that then later helps Ronald Reagan when he runs for governor of California in 1966. So I think that these three California presidents in in different generations, Herbert Hoover, uh, Richard Nixon, and then Ronald Reagan, helped to develop these techniques and the base and the the fundraising mechanisms that help export this type of conservatism to the rest of the nation. That uh, 1934 governor's race, I had no idea it was one of the sort of toes into the water of something that we talk about all the time now, which is dark money. Like there's dark money in political campaigns and who knows where it comes from. But it sounds like California was a was a pioneer there. Yes, exactly. And also in uh, in fake news, um, the conservative media not only distorted Upton Sinclair's uh, record, but they outright lied about him. And the Hollywood uh, film studios created uh, faked newsreels that made it look like they were interviewing uh, people on the street about Sinclair. But in fact, they were actors who were 
picked to discredit Sinclair's campaign. So all of these techniques that they're they're developing using the conservative media to spread these lies and to paint social democracy, liberalism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, as uh, an un-American project, these ideas are being packaged and sold to other conservative politicians throughout the United States. I mean, these public relations consultants in Sacramento um, – Whitaker and Baxter, who form this uh, firm called Campaigns, Inc., are then hired by a number of campaigns throughout the United States over the next couple of decades. And they're instrumental in helping to sink Harry Truman's campaign for universal health care in 1948 by painting it as as socialized medicine. So when you look at... um conservatism today, knowing what you know about um, many of its roots in California in the 1930s, how do you see what goes on around us now as sort of a mirror or an echo or connected to that time? Well, I think that conservative leaders today understand the basic lesson that the corporate growers learned in California in the 1930s. And that is, if you want to create a cross-class coalition against liberal policies that are otherwise broadly popular, you have to appeal to social conservatives. You have to create a coalition of economic conservatives and social conservatives and really make your message about threats to traditional values in order to mobilize working class and middle class voters. It, it seems, though, that uh, – I mean, I feel like the argument there is that people can't see this sort of uh, juxtaposition of like, well, I, I agree with the, the cultural piece of this, but, I, but, but the economic piece of what, of what conservatives are offering might um, – not help me. Um, do you think it's a it, the issue is sleight of hand, or do you think the issue is that people truly believe, you know, at whatever income level, look, you should make it, you know, you should sort of make it on your own, which is like very Herbert Hoover, like he made it on his own, like you should make it on your own, and um, it's not just an issue of religion or 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 gender hierarchies or whatever. It's also um, that it is good to have sort of free market conservatism. I think it becomes all one package that economic conservatism is linked with social and cultural conservatism. That the idea is that having a government that intervenes in the economy means having a government that intervenes in your family and in your religious life. And so therefore, you need to be in favor of small government, not just because that's what helps business thrive, but because small government is what is necessary to protect American families. You know, you you talked about the kind of um, connection between Hoover and uh, Richard Nixon and then Nixon and Ronald Reagan. I wonder what kind of connection you see with uh, President Trump, because in some ways um, he has very conservative uh, policies. If you think about like, um, you know, who he appoints to the Supreme Court, that sort of thing. Um, but in other ways, you've seen sort of longtime conservatives, like intellectual conservatives, you know, people like Bill Kristol, 
have just completely broken with President Trump, and he's not alone um, in that break. Um, Just situate President Trump, if you can, for me. Well, this is something that I'm wrestling with every day, because I think that Trump certainly is a break with certain kinds of conservatism in the United States. He certainly breaks with the Bill Kristol kind of neoconservatism. Right. But neoconservatism really rejected the old right in the United States, the old right of the 1930s, which it saw as very isolationist and anti-immigrant and racist and anti-Semitic. Okay. And so the never-Trump conservatives now, I think, in part oppose Trump because they see him as the direct heir of the conservatives that I write about in the 1930s, that he is really more old right. He's a paleocon um, in the in the parlance <laughs> of the 1990s. He's more a paleocon than a neocon. So finally, as we look ahead um, and think about where the brand of conservatism that that is most prominent now because it's in the White House, um, where that's going. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, you write about conservatism of the 1930s, which, you know, who knew if it would be a flash in the pan, but it certainly wasn't, right? It had, it really had legs. And now almost 100 years later, here we are talking about it, and it had real power. Um, Do you think that uh, people underestimate, you know, um, the conservatism that we see right now being embraced? Well, certainly that is what I would take away from the history of the 1930s, is for a long time, people thought that the old right of the 1930s, the isolationist nationalist right that was so opposed to labor unions and Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, that they lost, they lost the battle. They were the losers. Mm. Why should we pay much yeah. attention to them? There was a liberal consensus that dominated American politics from the 1940s to the 1960s. And throughout much of that era, and indeed into the 1980s, a lot of historians thought that you know history had turned a corner in the 1930s, and we were just going to get more and more progressive. And then Reagan was elected, and oh, this is a flash in the pan. This isn't going to last. And it wasn't until the 1990s that historians started looking at the conservative movement and saying, wait, (laughs) maybe this is more powerful than we thought. Mm -hmm. And I think recently, after 2016, historians are now looking at, say, Pat Buchanan, who hadn't gotten that much historical attention, is seen as a fringe figure of the 1990s and saying, well, here's an antecedent for Trump. And in Mm -hmm. fact, maybe we should go back and look at George Wallace again and Joe McCarthy and indeed uh, the conservatives of the 1930s and see that there's this continuous through line here that we hadn't realized was going to continue to be a powerful movement into the 21st century. Catherine Olmsted is professor of history at the University of California, Davis. She's the author of Right Out of California, the 1930s and the Big Business Roots of Modern Conservatism. Catherine, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. I'm a Dust Bowl refugee, just a Dust Bowl refugee. 
From that dust bowl to the peach bowl, now that peach fuzz is killing me. We've got an article on our website from Catherine about Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and the rise of conservative media. That's innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Here today and on our way.